Uh, today, uh, we are continuing in a sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, last Sunday in our series, we learned that Pharaoh had become very fearful of losing control and losing power doing, due to the growing number of Jewish people living in Egypt. Pharaoh was a king. He was a, the emperor, the ruler, the most powerful man on the planet during this time. And uh, he feared nas his, that national security was was going to be lost if these people, these millions of people, these Israelites, these Jewish people that were living in Egypt, if all of a sudden, if they were to turn and to join forces with the Egyptian enemies, then they could very well lose um, Egypt and lose their power. Therefore, what does he do? He takes his fear and he weaponizes that fear. And he institutes a change in philosophy, understanding laws and relationship between the Egyptians and the Israelites. What he does is he sets forth an edict and, and he chants, the chant transforms them, excuse me, from being citizens to now being slaves. Um, the Egyptians, not just the Pharaoh, but the Egyptians, they begin to hate the Israelites. And we learned for over 400 years, these people went from being citizens to now being enslaved by the Egyptians and went about building um, these crazy storehouses in these different cities um, for the Pharaoh. And uh, when this did not hinder the population explosion, because he thought if we send the men out to be slaves during the day and they come home, then they, want what, they will not want to be intimate with their wives. But this backfired. Instead, they would go and work and they would come home, engage in what married people get to do. And then they had a bunch of babies and the explosion continued. So he went forth from there and he took the midwives. These were women. These were like nurses in our day and time. And they would go and help ladies um, who were pregnant give birth to their children. Um, and the, the Pharaoh comes to these midwives and says, all right, here's, here's the deal. The slavery thing didn't work. And so whenever you see an Israelite woman and she is giving birth, rush to her aid. And when you get there, as she is giving birth, um, if you realize that this is going to be a male child, then we want you to secretly, mysteriously kill that baby in that moment. This is the first form of kind of, uh, you know, uh, political abortion is what's taking place here. And so the midwives, though, as we saw last week, feared someone greater than they feared Pharaoh. They feared the Lord. They combated unhealthy fear with healthy fear, and that fear can only be attributed when one surrenders and submits their lives to God, the one and only holy God. Well, the Pharaoh finds out that essentially, again, what's taking place, there's multiple babies being born all the time over and over and over again. And so Pharaoh's response to that is to instigate not just the killing of babies at birth, but essentially, hey, whenever you see a male Jewish boy, throw them into the Nile. All right. This is a form of genocide, generational genocide. And you just toss them into the Nile, which um, is a pretty raging piece of river. And it is filled with crocodiles. He was like, OK, we're going to cut this off then. Toss babies, toss young men specifically into the Nile so that they will die. And then we come to chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 10 with this sermon series called Little Women. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman, women, excuse me, walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is the one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and shall I call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. In our sermon text today, it's so important for us once again to understand the text and context of what is taking place. And in this brief 10 verses here this morning, we're going to meet three characters, three particular characters. These uh, ladies, these characters are, are like I said, they're, they're women. The, the first one that we're going to meet, and I think I have the names up here of these ladies to help you in case you're taking notes. These little women, here are their names. Jacobed, or Jacobed. Pharaoh's daughter, and Miriam, Moses' sister. And so to help lay some groundwork here, I want to talk briefly about each one of these women. Remember, who's writing this? Moses is. But Moses is not writing this as he's going along. Again, at this junction in the, in this, in the narrative here, he's not even born yet. All right? So what Moses is doing is, it's believed later in his life, as he writes the first five books found in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah, that as he's writing this, he's doing so at the very end of his age. He's going to be dying soon, maybe in a couple of years, maybe in a couple of months. And so he begins to write out what is taking place. So when the next generation goes into the promised land, that they will have a record so that they will understand what is taking place inside of the history, not only of creation, but specifically in the lives of the Israelites. Moses, when he writes this in chapter 2, when it says that a man from the house of Levi and a woman, a Levite woman, he knows who his parents are. He hasn't forgotten. He just withholds this as a good storyteller up into this moment. 
Now, he does tell us, again, that both of these people are from a specific type of group or tribe. They're called the the Levites, and we're going to learn a lot about the Levites, so I'm not going to spend time kind of diving in who the Levites were this morning. But they were a very special group of God's people found within God's people. Moses is setting himself up to say... This is the reason why I'm in the position that I'm in, that I have the credentials, that I have the resume before you. And part of it was that he was from the house of the Levites. So he writes this again so that younger generations are going to understand and have insight to what all of this meant. And so when they read about the Levites, guess what they know? Everything that maybe you and I don't know yet. All right, because this is years and years and years down the road. All right, so they know who the Levites are. They know, they know the, the, the responsiveness to that. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, we learn the names of Moses' parents. Amram, that's his father, and Jacobed, his mother. Now, what's interesting about this is that we will later learn as well about Miriam. And Miriam is the older sister of Moses. And she's probably less than 10 years old whenever these events take place. We're also going to learn that Moses has an older brother named Aaron, who is about three years older than Moses. Now, This particular section of scripture is going to focus on the ladies involved in this story. Jacobet, Pharaoh's daughter, and Miriam. Now, what's interesting about Jacobet is this. Joe, if you're taking notes and you'd like to nerd out on this sort of things. Yo, J-O, Joe, yo, all right? What's interesting about that is that is actually an abbreviated form of the name of God named Yahweh. Anybody heard Yahweh before? Right? Now, what's interesting about this, this is nerd fact for you today, is that when this is written, though, God has not yet revealed what His name is. They have no idea that God is going to eventually say, as we'll see in a few weeks, that His name is Yahweh. His name is Yahweh. But the short form of that, the the, the, the you know, nickname, if you will, um, for that name is the letters J-O. Yo. Alright. Joe. Jacobed, Jacobed, her name literally means Yahweh is glorious. And she doesn't even know it yet. Yahweh is glorious. And we will see the glory of God expressed in how he uses her in a very mighty way. Now, verse 2 tells us that when she gave birth to the child, that um, he was a fine child. Now, some of your Bible translations may even say that he was a beautiful child. Now, this isn't to downgrade on on who Moses' dad was. It's believed by by this time that Moses' dad was probably a slave. He's probably gone quite often. So she gives birth and she recognizes, like most moms probably in this room, is that you look down at your child who you've just given birth to and, and you realize and think that that child is the most beautiful thing. 
The idea, though, of this child being fine or being beautiful actually carries with it a deeper connotation, though, than you thinking that greasy baby is the most beautiful thing God has ever given to the planet. What it's believed to be taking place here is that she realized, Jacobet realized that as she looked at who would be eventually called Moses, that there was something special about this child. That he was not just probably good looking, um, but rather that God had something fine for him to do, beautiful for him to do. That this was not just a normal, average kid, but that there was something special about this baby boy and that she recognized it. See, their faith and their fear of the Lord drove them to obedience rather than the fear of Pharaoh. This is very reflective of, of what we saw even last week. So we see inside this text that after she gives birth, she already knows what Pharaoh has decreed. What? That if it's a boy, it should be instantly killed. And if it's not instantly killed, then you should take it out to Barren River and toss that little boy into the water so he would drown or be eaten by crocodiles. But Jacobet is a faithful mother. She fears God above everything else. She respects, she honors the Lord. She will not abort her child. She will not murder her child. Instead, she is going to try to hide, like many of us would do, her baby. And the Bible tells us, what does she do? She kept him unseen and unheard for three months. And I know right now, a lot of you are going, how in the world? We can't keep our kids quiet for three minutes, right? One of the great things about um, us all being in here until we launch Mention Kids is that if you go back to the, the, um, the video recordings or the audio recordings is that you can hear your kids. And I know that that bothers some of you, but it doesn't bother me as one of your pastors because it means that there's life here. I mean, literally, you guys saw it if you were here last week when Jonathan and I were leading worship. Um, we got to a song and I totally lost where I was at. And uh, if you didn't know this, it was because Cash, some of you knew this, uh, probably the riches did very well, everyone sitting on the back row, as my son lost his ever-loving mind and screamed loud, like really, really Pentecostal, you know, I just saw a spook, a ghost scary thing and he lost his mind and he as the dad heard it and it totally jacked me up i was like i didn't know where we were in that moment and yet what does moses's mom what is she able to do i think this is a mercy of grace of god obviously she's able to hide her son because she loves him and because she fears the lord but when it came to a point where she could not do that any longer, what does the Bible tell us? Well, she's got to come up with a plan. Something has to be done. See, uh, Jacobed was faithful. She was protective. She was creative. She was resourceful. She had to do something. She was strategic. And so um, it tells us in this passage that what she does, she creates this box, makes this box. This basket, she covers it in tar. You know, she probably puts a blue blanket in there because that's what Americans do, right? She snuggles as bug, like a bug in a rug. That little toddler wraps him all up tight and creates this, this mode of escape for her son. 
Now, what's interesting about this is our English translations tell us that the basket, or that she made a what? A basket, I told you. A basket. She makes a basket. Now, what's interesting about this is as Moses is writing this, what do we also know that Moses wrote? He wrote the book of Genesis. And by the time you get to the chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, you meet this guy named Noah, and, you know, God told Noah to build him an archie-archie, right? Anybody grow up in church? Had her go for barky barky, right? What's interesting about this term basket is that it's not correct in your Bibles. It's actually the word ark. She creates an ark. She builds the exact same thing that God used in Genesis chapter 6 to save Noah and a small group of his closest family members is the same thing that God is going to illustrate and use inside of this mother who loves her son. He, she creates a yark. Uh, a yark, that's funny. An ark. Now, notice that Noah didn't build a boat. He built an ark. Do you know the difference? A boat has a rudder. Boat has something in which you're able to manipulate it, control it. An ark is something that you create simply to set upon the water and let it go where it may. We're going to meet and learn about another ark in about a year in this series. God has a way with boxes, it's a box. It's a square. It's probably got a flat bottom on it. And the Bible connects what? The way in which He saves people in the Old Testament to the way in which He's going to save people continuing in the Old Testament. And then also we'll see some connections there in, in about a year inside of what He does with an ark inside of the New Testament. See, Noah and Moses were both God's appointed men to bring salvation and deliverance to God's people. Likewise, they were both saved from drowning. Noah and Moses would be placed into dangerous waters where they would die. And yet, what happens? They live. We're going to see God use water, arcs, and fire over and over and over again inside of this story. The Hebrew translation of this very idea of what she does indicates not something flippant. But in the original language, you get what Jacobet did. The, the, the translation there is this idea that can be missed inside of our English translations is that she gently or she places. It was strategic. She places, she, she delicate, she is committed to this protection of this young child. She's willing to do whatever. She fears God and yet knows at any moment that if, if one person or the wrong person hears the whimper and the cry of her nursing son, that at any moment they can come in and not only kill him, but kill the entire family. And so what does she do? By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she creates this box. She uses pitch and tar to cover this thing to make it as wider, wide, water sealed as completely possible. And she places, the Bible says, 
places her son into it. She doesn't just go out into the water and then just chuck it like the way that we taught our kids how to swim. You take them to the pool, you pick them up, you throw them in and say, do it, right? That's not what takes place here. Uh, on the opposite of that, the Bible says that Moses is placed into the Nile among the reeds. She goes where the current is less. She doesn't toss him out into the Grizzly River Rampage, if you're from around here and know what that is. It's Opryland. Tore down that paradise and put up a shopping mall. Messed that all up my entire childhood. But she goes to a specific place. She places it there. You know, we don't know exactly, but it's, it's possible that Jacobed even knew the times of day that Pharaoh's daughter would be bathing. And in faith, she trusts that this special child would fulfill a special mission for God. For God. While babies were being thrown into the Nile to be drowned or eaten by crocodiles, this mother, in faith and by faith, placed her son there. Did she obey Pharaoh? She did. But not in the way that he was expecting her to do. She did place him in the Nile. But with faith, she did so. What was meant to be a weapon of death had been transformed by faith into an agent of light and life. The next character that we meet inside of our story here today, the next little woman that we meet, is Pharaoh's daughter. See, and God's providence was at work not only in the faithful, but the unfaithful. Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river to bathe at just the right time in just the right place. And what does she find? She finds this basket. She opens up this basket and she looks at it realizing that what? That it is a Hebrew child. And she's caught in this moment of what? Obeying the Pharaoh, her father, or disobeying her father. And yet we see inside of this text that what takes place is that she's brave. She's compassionate. The word there for compassion or that she, when she looks at the child is that it's this idea of empathy. It's, it's an idea of pity. It's, it's used in the way that often that, that God looks at sinners and the way in which he looks at his enemies is that he has compassion on them. He has pity on them. He emphasizes with them. The word here is, is used throughout the Old Testament as, as a description of the very act of God. And this is the way that a pagan princess looks at Moses. She opens the basket. The baby is crying. She feels sorry for him. See, brothers and sisters, friends, even non-Christians can have moments of compassion and empathy. She adopts her enemy. She goes against the law. 
See, God was using even a pagan Egyptian as part of his saving plan. Now, after Moses is weaned, what happens? We eventually know that he comes back to her and she adopts him as her son. But if we continue on the story, we learn about Miriam. Because in Mama's um, strategy here, what does she do? She sends the older sister to follow along on the banks. To watch what happens to her brother. We learn that Moses is, this is Moses' sister. And, and we'll eventually learn in Exodus chapter 15 that her name is again Miriam. She was tasked with babysitting the basket, babysitting her brother as it dangerously floats down this river. She watches through the reeds as, as the princess comes and as she can, is in close enough proximity that she can hear what the princess is saying to the servant girls. And in the, the right moment, this young, probably under the age of 10-year-old girl does what? protects and is filled with wisdom beyond her years. As that princess holds that child wondering what they're going to do, this young Miriam runs into the scene and tells her, hey, I know of a, 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 a Hebrew woman who, who could nurse this baby. And in God's providence, in his care for Moses, Pharaoh's daughter looks at me, Miriam, the Hebrew, and says, fetch this woman. Take this baby back home. She doesn't even realize it. But she sends Moses back to his mama. Could you imagine just for a moment the, the tears of Jacob when she casts that little ark into the water and that she goes back home believing that I probably will never see my son again. And then maybe hours, maybe moments, I have no idea. You hear, you hear a knock at the door. Maybe it's Pharaoh and some soldiers. Maybe it's just a random guest or a random visitor. But you hear a knock at the door and you open up the door. And there's your 10-year-old daughter holding your baby. <clears throat> and then tells you that Pharaoh's daughter is the one that found Moses. And, and not only does she want to adopt Moses, but until he is weaned, she wants you, Mama, to take care of him. And also on top of that, she's going to pay you to do it. The only way that we can justify the story is to say how big God is. How in control of even the details that God is. Pharaoh would end up paying for the survival of his very enemy. The one that is going to cause him the most problems, the most issues. Is literally being paid from his wealth to grow up. We learn that after some time here, that um, it's, it's believed that um, probably during this time and age, um, kids uh, 
We're, we're breastfeeding probably, you know, who knows, two, three years. We don't really know how long Moses stays with his biological mother. But there came a point in time where he was weaned off of his mother, where he had learned enough from his Hebrew mama. And unlike the Ten Commandments, where you've got kind of, or this, even in the Prince of Egypt, if you've seen those movies where Moses kind of comes, he doesn't know that he's a Hebrew. And then it just kind of comes to know that. That's, that's not what we see in the Bible. We have every inclination here to believe that Jacobed, with Miriam's help as his big sister, taught him about God. For as long as they had him in their home, whether that would be a few weeks or a few months or it was potentially a few years is what it's believed to happen here, that, that she would be telling him about this creator God. Telling him about and these children about the creator God. The God of the Israelites. But there did come once again a time when Moses' mother and his big sister and his big brother and her dad, Amram, had to once again hand Moses over to Pharaoh. And upon that day, the Bible tells us that's how Moses gets his name, because the word Moses means to be drawn out of. And we're going to see throughout this series a very important thing that we are often drawn out of things in order to be drawn into something else. So in our narrative this morning, we learn about these three women and how they were used by God. Now, if we look at this kind of, how does, so what, Eric? So what that we've learned about these three women? Well, if I have kind of three points for us to consider and to preach through very briefly here this morning is this, and the first one will be extremely brief, is number one, and I think we have a slide for this, is God blesses obedience and disobedience. That God blesses both obedience and disobedience. Well, what do you mean by that? In Scripture, what are we often called to do over and over and over again? We are called to obey. Obedience is a really big deal to Jesus. Kids, the Bible even for you will tell you to honor and to obey your parents. We'll spend some time this year talking about that very truth. We are, we are told inside of Scripture that we are to live a life of submission. That means that we submit our lives to someone or something that has authority over us. We're told to mutually submit to our spouse. We're told to submit to our employer. We're told to submit to our pastors. And we're told to submit to our government. The way in which you and I honor God and worship God, one of those ways is through this idea of submission. It's humbling yourself before an entity or a person or a group of people to say we submit, we will do the will of these other people or these governments. God honors obedience. But God also honors disobedience. 
And so how, does, how do we rectify those two things? Well, God calls us to submission and obedience until whomever we are under authority of begins to ask and suggest that we do things that are not reflective of the God of which we serve. You and I are supposed to submit to the government. Unless this government is asking us to do something that goes against the very will of God. We've seen over and over and over again in the last several years, but specifically in the last several weeks, as people have tried to Christianize nationalism. And those two things do not mix. Not in the way that it's being portrayed. They do interact. They are in it together, but they are not of it together. This is not a Christian nation. We're to submit to the government in every way. Unless they're calling us and asking us to do things that dishonor God, and then we're to be what? Disobedient. We saw last week that Chipra and Pua, the two midwives, what do they do? They worked for Pharaoh. They, he is the government. He tells them to abort all of these children. And yet what do they refuse to do? To murder the kids. Why? Because it goes directly against God's ordained plan and, and, and purpose on the earth. God blesses obedience and disobedience. Here, once again, we, we see um, you know, the mother of Moses, Jacobin. Maneuver, manipulate the system because she refused to disobey God in obeying the government. But you guys, it's not just a governmental thing. It's a spouse thing. Again, it's a, a pastoral thing. It's a work thing. God blesses both obedience and disobedience. We see this inside of this passage. Number two is this, is that God uses little people for big purposes. God uses little people for big purposes. Again, we saw last week two God-fearing women, uh, women, Pura uh, and Pua, and then we learned about Jacobed and, and Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter here today. Is that So when you read the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, you would expect these mighty men of valor to be rising to the occasion. But no, who are the human heroes so far? Five women. Five women. Our temptation inside of even modern Christendom is to skip over heroism. It's to, it's to skip over um, the celebration of women throughout the scripture. And yet, already inside the book of Exodus, what do we see taking place? We see that God is using what many people would consider to be little women. And if you've ever read the book or watched the movie Little Women, what do you quickly realize about little women? They're the exact opposite of it. It's showing you over through the character and the nature of the people in the book, the ladies in the book, but also primarily inside of this passage today, that while, while viewed by the culture, um, both ancient and possibly modern, that, that there is this 
kind of belittling of women. And yet, inside of God's scripture, inside of these first two chapters, inside the book of Exodus, it is, it is women who are the ones, the very ones, being used by God to serve because they are the faithful ones placed in this position. There's this great book that is, uh, it's a Christian book about the celebration of women inside the life of the church and inside of our homes. It's called Worthy. I would encourage you to read it. One of the, the statements that's made in that book about this very passage of scripture is this. The Savior of Israel was saved by love, cunning, foresight, righteousness, and faithfulness of women. In Hebrews chapter 11, so years and years and years after the book of Exodus is written, in chapter 11, it's known as like the Hall of Fame of Faith. Like, these are the LeBron James, the Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's of, of the Christian faith. And in this Hall of Fame, guess who is listed? Moses' parents is listed there. By faith, the Bible says, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the, the, the evil edict that is placed by Pharaoh. By faith, they did these things. See, in many cultures, specifically in ancient times, um, women did not have much role in society other than working around the house and raising children. They were property. A man could own a camel and, and own a wife. They couldn't be used as witnesses in the court of law. It didn't, many, it didn't matter how many crimes that you may have saw, ladies. You could have been an eyewitness, and yet when it went to trial, you could not even serve as a witness. It's very familiar to what happened inside of the United States of America. I believe it was around 1920 when women were actually given the right to vote. But you, did you know that after women were even given the right to vote inside of America, that it was years and years later before they could ever even serve on a jury? So imagine just for a moment, in the early 1900s, you're an abused woman, and you have to go to trial, and you face a jury full of men. Women were considered little. They were insignificant. But here throughout the scripture, we see little women in the hands of a really big God. And what do they do? Huge things for the king. How many of you guys know what this is? I've got a picture of it up on the screen. Maybe. You ever seen one of those before? It's called a linchpin. We've got a small one here as well, and a little bit bigger one. I use these at my house. It's called a linchpin. And they're typically um, most used in, in really small situations. And they come in, in several different forms and fashions, but, but you've probably seen these before. If you've ever seen like an axle with a wheel on it for like a wagon, right? And that axle pokes through the wheel, and then there's this little hole, and there's this little pin that goes into that, and it locks that axle to that wheel. 
That's called a linchpin. That's what that is. If you've ever hooked up a, a trailer to a truck, right? It's got that little bitty hole and you need something, you know, and if you're like my dad, you always got creative broom handles, wire, you know, all kinds of things to jam down in that hole to lock that trailer on the back of the lawnmower. Anybody? Y'all are from Kentucky. Anybody follow me? Anybody seen these before? Screwdriver. <laughs> Duct tape. Right? If you've ever been in a situation where you didn't have a linchpin, you are in great, dire need. And like I said, you'll become creative. We've done this with our beach cart before. We'll lose the linchpin, and we've, we've shoved all sorts of things into that beach cart to try to keep that thing going. Is it the trailer? Is it the axle? Is it the wheel? No, it's, it's this small little device that is extremely valuable if you don't have it. Brothers and sisters, in many ways, these women, and likewise us, both male and females, we are not God, obviously. We're not making this thing go, and yet, humbly, before an almighty, sovereign, God, full of, of providential care, has so chosen to use the small to move his mission forward. These ladies inside the story of, of Moses and inside the greater narrative of the Exodus are, are the linchpins that, that God is using in this way. See, we see God use women and men over and over like this in the scripture, but specifically because it's women inside of this passage, I want to focus briefly on ladies. Inside the Old Testament, we meet these little women from society's viewpoint. Women like Sarah and Rachel, Rahab, Ruth, Hannah, Deborah, Esther. Inside the New Testament, we see these mighty women of faith, Mary and Mary Magdalene, Martha, and another Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, Jesus' close friend. We'll see Paul write about a lady named Priscilla. And we see Paul commend and even know that Paul is able to continue in ministry by the financial support of a, a woman named Lydia. Have you ever taken the time to study how Jesus interacts with women? I want you to remember, if you've heard this story before, about how Jesus interacts with this adulterous woman in a well. She's essentially a prostitute. She's giving herself to man after man after man after man. And Jesus knows all of those things about her. How about the woman as Jesus is walking down the street and the, the religious people, they take this prostitute woman, they throw her down at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus begins to draw in the sand, happy little trees or something. I have no idea what he begins to draw, right? And he looks at the woman. But he says something to the religious body. He says, if you're without sin, then you pick up the first stone and kill her with it. And the Bible says they all walk away. Jesus looks at this woman and he says to her, 
The only person that can condemn you is me. And I don't. How about the, the woman with the issue of blood who made, it, made her culturally unclean for 12 years, the Bible tells us. We, we hear this story of Jesus at the home of Simon the leper, right? He's just healed this man named Simon of leprosy. They go to have a big party. And while they're there, it's believed another prostitute comes into the room. And as they're sitting there trying to eat, the Bible tells us that she takes an alabaster box. It's like women's ministry one-on-one, right? She takes an alabaster box that's filled with this, this ex expensive oil. And she cracks it over the brother's head. And it's just running down him, covering his head, his beard, covering his clothes. And of course, all the men, because this is what we do, we sit around going, what an expensive waste. We could have sold this, given it to the poor. What does Jesus say, though? He says, this is beautiful. He says, the poor will always be among you, but I will not. And for as long as this gospel is proclaimed throughout the earth, you will speak and tell the story, not of those other men, but of this woman. In 2020, I stand before you doing that very thing. It's believed that this happened actually really close to Jesus being crucified. And so I have this professor who talks about how as Jesus hung upon the cross, it's very possible as he got whiffs of blood and mud and all of these issues that he simultaneously or occasionally would get a whiff of the smell of of this perfume. Little women in the hands of a really big God. As Jesus hangs naked, beaten beyond recognition and fighting for every breath, He remembers His earthly mother, right? And He tells John, imagine suffocating. That's what you die of when you're on a cross. Bodies all contorted and twisted, and you're lifting up on those nails to take a breath. And in the midst of all of that excruciating pain, he looks at his mama and his closest friend, a close friend, and he says, Take care of my mama. Take care of her. We see foreshadowing here, don't we? Of Jesus. Of him coming to Mary. And as he's coming to Mary and as he's being born, what do we know about King Herod? That he decrees that what should happen? That Jewish boys should be killed. And so where do Mary and Joseph flee in the Christmas story? They flee to Egypt. Isn't that crazy? They flee to Egypt. They flee to this. Get it, Judah. Go, 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 go. All right. They flee to, to Egypt. To, to be rescued. Right? Even the, the wise men, they, they come and, and they find out from Herod, right, that what's taking place, this bad thing that's happening. And, and they're supposed to know and they're supposed to come back to, to, to King Herod and tell him exactly where the Messiah has been born. And yet, what do the wise men do? They don't tell the whole truth. We see... 
this beautiful significance of women. One of the reasons why I have a major problems with the removal of genders. And that's what society is trying to do to us. It's just to make us all they. But to do so is to literally downgrade the image bearers of God and seeing the beauty in both of those genders. Women of mission. We are praying for you. We need Jacobets and Miriams and Marys and Marthas. This church, our faith family, needs women who fear God and take His Word seriously. We, meet, we need women to take discipleship in the home and in the coffee shop seriously. We need women involved in ministry and missions. Theology and doctrine and education are not just for men, but are equally important for women. I'm reminded of, of modern women like Jen Wilkin and Nancy Guthrie and Janie Ortland and, and Kathy Keller who, who provide these kind of modern examples outside the Bible and, and modern examples for us um, to follow in this passion. If it was not for females involved in the International Mission Board, then we would not have missions as you and I know it. Literally, on the field right now, there are way more women involved in missions throughout the world than there are men. Mission Church, this faith family needs even more of these type of theologians and, and sound doctrine women who love God and love their husbands or, or love their singleness and they love kids and they're going to be involved in submitting and fearing God and then using those gifts to better this congregation for Mission Church to grow in Christ's likeness. And man, we're prayerfully seeking and continue to call and want to see mature women equipped in our congregation. Sisters, you are not second-rate Christians. You are the image bearers of God. We are not complete without you. We need your input. We need your active involvement. We need your unique perspective, your advice, your prayers. We need your nurturing. But this does not just shove you into a room as we have historically done throughout American Christianity that a woman's place in the church is in children's ministry. And guess what? That may be. But it's not for all. Men of mission. We need to love, honor, respect, encourage, support, and pray for our sisters in Christ. We need, we need to be careful how we look at them. They are not objects for us to lust after, but they are daughters of the King. We cannot see them as less than in the room. They are co-laborers in the mission of God. As the Bible would say, we must be careful in our speech toward them. And this, this is difficult. The way in which dudes speak to dudes is different than the way a man should speak to a woman. And it can be difficult to shut that off. But again, reference Jesus. I 
I was thinking through this sermon and I just came to this kind of just moment of thanksgiving. As I recognized that and I, I would not be before you if it was not for the gospel faithfulness and prayers of my mom. She was the spiritual um, front runner in our home. I wouldn't be here today and, um, without the, the, the support and loyalty of my sister. When we moved back from Phoenix and planted Mission, um, the only people we told didn't have a choice on where they went to church was my sister and Todd. We would not be here without the Hazels. And specifically, uh, for me, uh, Todd is, is one of my closest and best friends, but we're specifically honoring women here today, is that the loyalty and support of my sister is not new. It is something, she has been my Miriam my entire life, and I love you. And not to be outdone, but Eric Baker would not be alive without the unconditional love of his wife, Laura. I would not be here. There have been many a moments where my wife has walked me off cliffs. Where would you be? None of us would be here without the faithful example and the linchpins of these little women in the hands of an almighty, holy God. Because brothers and sisters, when we read the story of Exodus, we're not just reading about an ancient people. This is our family. The Exodus story is our story. Last, last point is this. Give your children to God and to His mission. We see the faith it takes for Jacob to not only place Moses in the Nile, but also to take him back to Pharaoh's daughter. After what is believed to be several years, she takes him to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised as an Egyptian. Can you imagine once again the tears that she shed over as she handed her then son Moses? And yet, what does she do? She trusts God. As we saw earlier, Moses' family were, were known for their faith. They were faithful people. And as long as she had him, what was she going to teach him? She was going to teach him about God. She taught and illustrated what a faithful life looked like to Moses, to Aaron, to, and to Miriam. And what do we see later down the road because of her good investment? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are the leaders of the Israelite people. We see in Proverbs 22.6, right? You may get this on a coffee cup somewhere. Raise up a child in the way that they should go. When they are old, they will not depart from it. But brothers and sisters, that's a proverb, not a promise. You got to know the difference when you read your Bibles. It's wisdom. It's good advice. It doesn't lessen what we need to do. But, but look at your parents. And I know even in the midst of what you're doing right now, as you're parenting in the midst of all of this preaching, get this, you've got to hear this. Go back and listen to this. Here's, here's the truth of all this. The spiritual development of your child does not begin at church. It begins in the home. Parents, single parents, foster parents, 
the responsibility to teach your children to fear God and to honor Him in all they do is your responsibility. Male and female. It's the church's responsibility to supplement, to come alongside of, to partner with the effort. But the main weight of what is to be done is to be done in the home. Discipleship begins in the home. Have lots of kids. We think it's freaky to see a van load of Christian folk getting out and coming into church. The Lord sees that as a blessing. He sees it as a fulfillment of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Let's open our, our homes to the more of fostering kids. And we all know, and we've heard, that is not easy. More adoptions. Why? So that we can teach those kids about Jesus. A week, a month, years. So that you and I can teach them in our homes about Jesus. We need to get mission kids started again. No joke. Not so that we can babysit your kids though. But rather so that as we're holding your little baby who is crying and uses the bathroom all over themselves. As whoever is holding them is rocking in a chair in one of those rooms. And they're praying over that child's life. We need to get mission kids started again. Not so that we can babysit your kids. Not so that they're not running around here. You know. All sorts of those sorts of things. We need to start Mission Kids again so that we can partner with you, so that you can focus on the gospel being preached to you, but that they can hear the gospel in those rooms. It's about teaching them the gospel. We find out that Moses goes back to Pharaoh's daughter, right? And who educates Moses? Christian school? Nothing against Christian school, nothing against homeschool with what I'm about to say. Don't misquote me on this. We learn in the book of Acts that there's this young man named Stephen. He's a deacon inside the church. And people, the religious people are really ticked off at him. That they're about to kill him. And guess what he starts talking about? The Exodus story. And in the Exodus story, he specifically starts talking about Moses and where Moses was educated. Moses was educated by the Egyptians. He was educated by the pagans. For 40 years before he goes into the wilderness, which we'll get to next week, 40 years he is educated around nakedness, paganism, the worship of all these gods and goddesses, and yet simultaneously he is receiving the best, best mathematics, science, um, you know, it wouldn't have been English, but Egyptian language. He learned languages, and all of that was coming from a satanic pagan form of education. And yet, how does Moses turn out? Faithful. Again, nothing against homeschooling. You do what's best for your kid. Nothing against Christian schooling. This is actually encouragement for those of us, because there are those of us who choose to send our kids to public school, and there can be a lot of shame there. Specifically when we get around certain Christian groups of people who make us feel less than because we're sending our kids to that pagan public school. And so I'm speaking to those of you who are making that decision. If you feel like that's best for your kid, just know they can still turn out all right. Even when they learn those wordy dirts. Those bad wordy dirts. They're hearing them at school. I came here to church a few weeks ago and the F-bomb was written across our glass. From the inside, folks. (laughs) 
Be encouraged. Why? You got to give your children to God and to His mission. To His mission. We're to teach them to show them Jesus. But, but get this, for every one of us, there is going to be a day, mommies and daddies, there's going to be a day when you're going to have to let go. You're going to send them off to college. They're going to get on an airplane. They're going to get on a bus. They're going to go to spring break. Date myself. It used to be in Panama City. I don't know where you guys go now. But when you went to spring break in Panama City when I was young, you knew what that meant. There is going to be a day like Moses' mom where you're going to have to take that child, that young man, that young adult, and you're going to continue to be faithful in prayer and encouragement and all that sort of stuff. But the helicoptering around them when they're 34 is just not that cool. And it's hard. It's going to be a tough day. But you're going to have to let go and trust that God is a true and better parent than you are. And that all of you, all the teaching, if you've been faithful in doing that, our hope and prayer is that what will they do? They'll come back. Many of us in this room have been prophets, sons and daughters. And yet here we are. My mama a few years ago got to feel bad. She's like, oh, son, I should have done things differently with you and your sister. I would have done things differently. If I knew what I knew now, I'd do things so different. I said, mama, lovingly, can you stop? I love my sister. My sister loves me. I'm a, I've given my life to pastoral ministry. My sister loves Jesus. Like, you ain't Jesus, parents. By faith and trust in God, He can work even in the most prodigal of kids. Because guess what we all did? To some degree, every one of us went crazy. Every one of us in this room, in our own certain ways, went absolutely anti-gospel, anti-Jesus. And probably we're saying the name of Jesus while we did it. Your kids are going to go too. Remember the Exodus. When you take your Hebrew child to the throne room of Pharaoh and say, God, He's yours. Mission Church, let's be a people who fear God. Let's, let's be a people who know when to obey and to disobey authorities. Let's be like these little women, humble, but in the hands of a really big God. And when we're in that place and when we're obedient, man, He can use us for great big things. Lastly, let's remember and see the value and importance and be encouraged to know that one day we're going to have to let go of our kids. And yet let us trust that God has a bigger and brighter future 
than even we have for them. Let us be those people. Let's pray.